0: Our guest today is one of our sport's most important and legendary pioneers, Mark Sosen. He was an award-winning writer, lecturer, tackle consultant, TV host, and producer. Of his 33 books and over 3,000 articles, his comprehensive set of regulations governing saltwater fly rod catches for the IGFA connects each and every fly rod world record to him. Mark and I became close when together we'd induct new members into the IGFA Fishing Hall of Fame. And it's a great honor to have him on the show. We hope you enjoy it.
1: We broke everything. We broke lines, we broke hooks, we broke rods, we broke our minds, we broke marriages, we broke the
0: whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow and he turned around the other way and I shot him going through the other way. So I double lunged him both ways.
1: But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're gonna teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet.
0: And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. Mark, it's great to see you. Thank you for allowing us to come into your home. Um, it's been a while. You know, we used to work together at the IGFA during the induction ceremonies. But, Absolutely. You know, for all those, all those great people we inducted together. Yeah. Um, you've had such an enormous life in fishing. You're 88 next month. You know, I see you have this great shirt, Mark Sosen's Saltwater Journal. We all, we I all that out for you. <laughs> we all grew <laughs> up with you in, in that TV show. Um, how do you feel? How do you feel about this big life you've had?
1: You know, as we were talking, I, I started off in a different direction, and I turned around and I wound up doing stuff that I never thought I'd do, writing. Magazine pieces, newspapers, books, doing radio, doing television, becoming an educator. Um, It's been a fabulous ride.
0: I mean, you graduated from the Wharton Business School. I did. And you were, your original goals, I think, were to be running a big business somewhere.
1: Absolutely. I, I went for a master's degree under Peter Strzok. Who is the father of modern management today? uh, A sheer genius. And uh, I started off working for companies. The last one I worked for was Revlon. And I used to tell the girls that I was a test pilot in their lipstick division and I needed to test their lipstick. (laughs) But that that didn't work. Did it go over so well? (laughs) No.
0: Do you remember the first fish you've caught? Yes. When and where?
1: My father fished. I was three and a half, almost four years old. And we lived in New Jersey. And in North Jersey, there were a lot of trout in the rivers. And he hooked a trout. And he handed me the rod and let me land that trout. And that was the first fish I ever caught.
0: Do you remember the impact it had on you?
1: I love fishing for the rest of my life. Even when I was going into industry, that didn't stop me. When I came out of the service, I went down to the Florida Keys and I spent three weeks fishing. That simple.
0: And you traveled the world your entire life.
1: Uh, at least half of it.
0: Right. Tell me about You know, your saltwater journal TV show that you had.
1: When I was trained for the Navy, I was a naval officer on a destroyer. And one of the training sessions they gave us was look down the road. Which meant that never mind what you're doing today. What's going to happen next week, next month, next year, five years from now? just look in the future. And I did that. And I realized that in in those days, I was 50 years old when I started television. Uh, I realized that young people were not reading as much, they were watching television. Now, if I'm a print journalist, I'm working towards a miserable ending because you're not gonna sell as many books you're not going to write in many magazine and newspaper pieces, so I decided I had to go on television and just just to tell you, Andy, I was told um, that I wouldn't make it to the second year and twenty seven years later, my wife made me quit. <laughs> but uh the reason I did a saltwater show, you know, one of the things I like to just share with people is. I'm in a Freshwater Hall of Fame, as well as three others, including the IGFA Hall of Fame. Uh, I have caught more different species in freshwater than most people would, including Golden Dorado in Argentina and toothy critters in Africa and all kinds of stuff. Um, it isn't just catching the fish and releasing them. But being able to share this knowledge and do these things uh, for people and let them know what it's like, I have no regrets.
0: You were mentioning that somebody asked you one time who you are. Tell me about that story.
1: A very well-educated and very brilliant friend of mine said to me, what do you do? I said, I'm a writer. He said, no, you're not a writer. Tell me what you do. I said, well, you tell me. He said, no, you figure it out. Drove me crazy, Andy. Drove me crazy trying to figure it out. One day I called him and I said, I know what I am, Paul, I'm an educator. He said, that's right, never forget it. Because everything I've written was to share information or teach somebody something. And I didn't realize this. It's just the way it came out.
0: That was your passion. Yeah. You just love sharing. Yeah. Well, you've had, like, I think you've written over 4,000 articles. 30, right. 33 books. Yeah. And 27 years in the broadcast business. what's What stands out more than another? Or is this all a compilation of...
1: No, certain things stand out. The best book I ever wrote was called Through the Fish's Eye. And I did that with a marine biologist. I used to, when I lived in New Jersey, the federal government had a biological research center in Sandy Hook. And they had had a tank there that took water from the bay. So they had actual seawater in this tank and um, I was there talking to them and I'd say well why don't you tell people this and they said oh no if we talk to people other than scientists we lose our credibility and I'm blinking and looking at them and I decided I would put some of that in a book So I got a biologist to work with me, gave him half credit, but I wrote the book. And he would give me the information, you know, or tell me what it meant. And uh, I went to the Outdoor Life Book Club, which was the best thing you could ever have. And they said they'd publish it. So I wrote the book, and they decided nobody would read it. And they took... They took half of what I wrote. They just cut that out of the book. All right? And they put it away for about a year, a year and a half. And one of the big publishers was looking through their files one day and said, I want to publish this. It is still, this is, I can't remember how far back it was. Certainly, in in the mid to late 70s, you know, they're still publishing it today and turning it loose. And Arnold Gingrich, who um, was the editor, the owner of Esquire magazine, I believe, and uh, he started a lot of famous writers and he said it was one of the 10 best books ever written on fishing. But it's still in print today.
0: It's amazing. It is amazing. Um, <clears throat> I think you were inducted into the IGFA Hall of Fame too late. <laughs> you should have been in there much earlier. No. What, tell you. what did that mean to you?
1: You know, I'm in four halls of fame, and I'm grateful to be in all of them. But. When I got the phone call that said, we're putting you in the IGFA Hall of Fame, and I became the 55th person in the world to go in there. and When you consider that Dame Juliana Berners from the 1600s, Isaac Walton, um, the man who headed, started the Boy Scouts of America, uh, Ted Williams, all kinds of people in there, And I'm 55, and what they did was they put five of us in a year. You know that because you were inducting them, and um, they put five of us in a year, and my name began with S, so we went from 51 to 55, and I was 55.
0: (laughs) Well, congratulations! I I think you know as a fly fisherman. Possibly one of your greatest contributions to the sport was all the fly fishing rules that you wrote. You basically yes. established the parameter and the you spectrum. You know that. Yes. I mean, but I didn't realize that you were such a great fly fisherman. But maybe more so as a as a uh, visionary.
1: My father fly fished. He was a good fly fisherman and he taught me at a very early age and we did saltwater fly fishing uh in new jersey at times for striped bass and bluefish and weak fish uh,
0: but what's impressive is that you had the spectrum of all tackle offshore fly fishing but yet your refined knowledge with fly fishing established the confinements of what the IGFA fly fishing rules are. Can I tell you that story? Yes, absolutely.
1: Okay. Um, What happened was a man by the name of Fred Schreier started the Saltwater Fly Fishermen of America, an organization. He wanted to organize them all over the country. And I was on the board because I knew Fred very well. And... they started recognizing fly fishing catches. And I said, you know, we've got to have rules for these. Everybody's got to do the same thing if you're going to recognize these catches. They said, wonderful idea. You write the rules. And one thing, Andy, I want to point out. When you write rules for world records, take the word world. Now, in the United States, you can understand what a dead boat means. You can understand what a lot of things mean. Can you do that in Angola? Can you do that in some other country somewhere in the ends of the world? No, you can't. So you have to write the rules where they are applicable anywhere in the world and understood. As an example... In order, to the, the rule was you had a cast from a dead boat. But which you, which
0: means a boat out of gear. Well. Or is that?
1: That's what I wrote. In other words, they, they wanted a boat to stop moving. Whether it's in gear, or out of gear, or whatever it's doing, they wanted it to stop moving. Who's they? The people that wanted these world records. Okay. Okay? My point was... You, you have to have some measurable event. And I came up with the idea of put it out of gear. Once you take it out of gear, even if the boat is moving.
0: It's out of gear.
1: It's out of gear and it's not, it's legal.
0: So that is what established a dead boat.
1: Yeah. And things like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I got to tell you this. I had to disqualify a couple of multimillionaires, and I'm just a poor writer.
0: (laughs) Were you worried about a lawsuit?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I used to have lunch with Elwood Harry periodically. He ran the IGFA. And I said, Elwood, let's have lunch. And we had lunch. And I said, have I got a deal for you? And I gave him the Saltwater Fly Rod World Records. And that's how IGFa got them.
0: So you were collecting those world records. Yes, before I kept the IGFa, them. I kept them. So all those world records came to you, and you tested the tippets.
1: I tested every leader. I had I had a friend by the name of Bob Church, who built me a testing machine, and I tested every leader.
0: And how many years were you doing that before the IGFa took over that oh, responsibility? Oh, maybe three years, something right. like that. And where were you living then? In, in New Miami, Jersey New Jersey So how did these people around the world find you to send those tippets to I
1: don't I don't remember
0: How many think you t- you, you broke over those years I
1: don't remember But I know that I had to get rid of them
0: <laughs> You didn't want that responsibility
1: Well you know I mean
0: it's going it's going to be a
1: You take one of these wealthy people they call their attorney and they say go ruin his life I can't even defend myself.
0: Right. But the foundation of world record keeping
1: in saltwater fly fishing
0: was, is mine. Was you? Yes. That's that's remarkable. What? Uh, let me ask you this: A lot of people feel some of the guys that are really involved with tournament fishing. Uh, I won't mention names, but they feel that if you don't fish inside the confines of IGFA, which is fishing with 20-pound tests or less with fly rods, you're not fly fishing. How do you feel about that? I don't fish tournaments. But let's just say you want to go catch a bluefin tuna and you use 40-pound tests with a fly rod. Well, back when I was doing stuff, 12-pound was the limit. Right, 12-pound light.
1: You know... I got the first Allison tuna or yellowfin tuna on fly in Bermuda. And Joe Brooks, who incredibly famous in fishing, you know, after World War II, Joe Brooks said that I was young enough and strong enough to beat one on a fly rod. 12-pound tippin. I want to tell you this because it's interesting. Um, So he called Pete Parent Chief who handled fishing in Bermuda set it up for me to go and I used to love the letters from Pete because on the envelope it always said on her majesty's service <laughs> <laughs> anyway so I went there and we raised blue fins and they didn't think they're yellow fins and they didn't think it could be done okay so everybody had to catch one with conventional tackle And when I hooked one on 30-pound test gear, I was convinced I couldn't land one either. But I was going to try. So they're chumming them from the right side of the boat in the stern. I got a back cast from the left side. And I kept casting and retrieving, and the tuna would eat the chum and swim around. Until that time... I had never heard of anybody fishing a dead fly in a chum slick. And finally, I said to the mate, I said, throw a handful of chum right there. And he threw a handful of chum. and I laid this thing back. And the fly dropped in the middle of the chum, and I just let it sit there. And I can still see this tuna come along and just suck it in. I set the hook. He stripped the reel three times and I landed him 53 pounds, 6 ounces. 12
0: pound test.
1: 12 pound test.
0: How long did that record stand?
1: I don't know. But the next day a guy, another captain came aboard the boat before we put to sea and he talks to Pete Perrin, chief, and he throws a fly at him he said did you ever see one of these and i looked at him i said i got 11 more just like them (laughs) they hooked another tuna that had my fly in its mouth and it weighed 75 pounds wow so but i was happy with 53 pounds six ounces
0: yeah no kidding um so going back to the question if somebody wants to throw 30 pound tests with a fly rod are they fly fishing
1: You know, there's fly fishing, and there's fishing for records, or fishing within the rules. Right. No, they're not within the rules.
0: But they are fly fishing. But they're fly fishing. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, Certain animals or big fish, you you know, you want to be connected and have a chance.
1: Andy, I try not to tell people what to use or how to fish and all that. Right. I got to tell you a funny story.
0: Okay? Of course.
1: Early in my career, I used to speak to clubs and other gatherings and get a small pittance, you know, for being there. And these guys would sit in the front row with what I called scare jackets, all the patches on them, you know, and they would had their arms folded looking at them. What's this kid going to tell us that we don't already know? So <coughs> I had found out, that the strength people at DuPont had 10 or 12 people just testing knots and breaking lines and doing all kinds of stuff. I asked if I could go there, so they said yes. I went down and watched them, and I learned how to tie monofilament to single-strand wire leader, which in those days they couldn't do. And... I'd look at this audience and I'd say, you know, you can't tie monofilament to single-strand wire leader. And they'd, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I said, but I did it and I want to show it to you. And I'd take the meanest-looking guy and I'd say, here, hold the line. And he'd wrap it around his hand. And I'd take a pair of pliers and hold the end of the wire and I'd pull... Pull, pull, pop. And the line broke. And the knot was still there. And they look at me. I could have told them that fish lived on dry land.
0: <laughs> what knot was that?
1: I don't remember.
0: Because I think we tie, you know, an Albright yeah. monofilament to, yeah. to wire. Yeah. Um I don't remember what I tied, but right um, how many knots did you innovate because you've got not the book, a whole lot you of got them. the books on knots you just uh
1: yeah, lefty and I did a book on knots,
0: yeah, tell me about lefty practical your, fishing your knot. friendship with lefty
1: oh it lasted many many years towards the end towards the end it changed some um but other than that. It was a good friendship. In fact, the first time, nobody knew Lefty and Fred Schreier, the guy who started Saltwater Fly Riders of America, he knew Lefty and he brought him at one of the gatherings and that's how I met him. Anyway, we went to this event on a houseboat or a ferry boat and As we walked up the ladder to get on board, Lefty was standing at the top, and I had brought Susan. We were just getting serious. And I said, Lefty, I want you to meet my friend Susan. And he looks at her, and he doesn't say a word, and he says, you're going to marry that guy, aren't you?
0: But he's too stupid to know it. (laughs) Typical Lefty.
1: And that's typical Lefty.
0: No kidding. What, what a joy he was.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, like I tried to do, too. He, he shared his casting techniques with anybody. And he was an educator.
0: For sure. Um, how does it make you feel to share, you know, to, to teach? Didn't bother me. I mean, it must have been, was it greater than catching a fish?
1: I think so, to an extent. Right. I just thought of another story. Of, of
0: course. It's your stage, my friend.
1: <laughs> They're all in the book I gave you.
0: I'm going to read them. I'm going to read every word. <laughs> but
1: you remember the television show, Deliverance?
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Okay. I I was... Uh, a tester for several tackle companies and people who made stuff for fishing and also for airlines. And Red Ball sent me to this place, a bunch of us, and we unlocked the chain. They drove a car, and they dropped each guy off a quarter of a mile apart on the river. And I'm fishing this one little quarter-mile stretch, and I see a, a small bridge going over the stream. So I decided, you know, I've got polarized glasses because I fish the keys, and these guys don't. I figured if I got up on a bridge and looked in the water, I could spot the trout, then go back and cast to them. So I walk up on a bridge. This is private property. And two guys walk out of the woods. They got beards, unshaven, unwashed, I can't run, I got waiters on. You know, hi, how are you? <laughs> they don't answer. Are there any fish in here? They don't answer. No matter what I said, they don't answer. I figured, oh boy, here it comes. And one of them says, I know you, you're Mark Sosen. I watch you on television. <laughs> oh, thank God.
0: <laughs> what a small world, yeah. the world of TV right? Yeah. Well, you had that show what 27 years? 27 years. What what is the greatest show that you've that you did? If there's one?
1: I don't I never really thought about it.
0: Or or your favorite fish or maybe your favorite location around the world fishing.
1: You know. I when I started, I didn't know anything about television. And it took me five years to get the number one company making outdoor shows to take me on. And that was Cinesport. And their guys were supposedly experts. By the third show that they shot for me, I knew they were doing it wrong. And I told them. They'd, simple thing, Andy. Like They'd shoot a a fish catch at 12 noon, and they shoot the cutaways at 5 in the afternoon while the light doesn't match.
0: Right. Tell me about tarpon in Africa. (laughs)
1: Well, airlines were trying to develop areas where they could get fishermen to fly and increase their passengers, and SAS, Portuguese Airlines, going to send me to Algeria to fish for tarpon in the Kwanzaa River, okay? And they didn't have much in the way of boats, so I got a boat builder to give me two 16-foot skiffs, and I got Johnson Outboards to give me two 25-horsepower Johnsons with the idea that none of it's coming back, I'm going to leave it in Africa. They put it on. I, I got it to New York, to to Kennedy Airport, and they put it in a plane, flew it over, okay? So I go to Algeria, and we go to this place, and the guide says to me, There's only one way to catch tarpon in the Kwanzaa River. Okay, what's that way? Well, you take a silver spoon like this, and you put it behind the boat, and you troll, and a tarpon will come up and eat it. I said, oh. I said, well, could I just make a couple of casts with this mirror lure plug of mine that I have tied on? I said, sure. On the second cast, I put a 100-pound tarpon in the air. Okay? he looks. The guide looks at me and he said, there are two ways to catch tarpon in the Kwanzaa River. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's funny. Um, did you have a great passion for offshore fishing as well as the shallow flats? No. You like the skinnier water better?
1: Yes. People ask me, What's my favorite fish to catch? And my answer is one that I can see. Right. There's a fish. Make that fish eat whatever you're throwing and catch that fish. And to me, that's the ultimate challenge.
0: Because hunting comes into play.
1: That hunting comes into play, but also you're looking at a thing that your own skill you got to make that fish eat.
0: Yeah, it's so much different than just blind casting because now you have a target. Yeah. So casting comes into play. And then the feeding aspect. So what is your favorite fish besides one that you can see if there is such an animal? I don't know.
1: I've caught all kinds of stuff. Uh, in this country and in other countries, fresh and salt water. You
0: know it. It's been a great ride, Andy. Yeah, it has. Absolutely. Take me back in time. Give me, give me that couple of days that you'd like to revisit.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Hard, hard to think of them. So many. Yeah. Oh, I, I got a story I want to tell you. Well, I, I fish the Araguaia River in Brazil. It flows a thousand miles north to the Amazon. It is as primitive as you can get. They have this barge. has a few cots in it and a, a stove to make lunch or dinner. Okay? And we have two Indian guides. And We'd fish in small boats and then come back there for lunch or for dinner. So we came back for dinner. We're waiting inside for dinner to be cooked. And the door opens. And the two Indians, laughing, push in a great blue heron. Which stands probably four and a half feet tall, all right, and is very upset. Now, we're in the jungle. You tell me how they located a great blue heron in the dark, how they snuck up on it and grabbed it by the neck. When you convince me how they did that, then I'll tell you the rest of the story. Is that amazing? It's crazy. And then we get this other guy, the other Indian. You know what a caiman is? It's like an alligator, right? Okay. So we're in a boat at night. He sees a caiman. And the caiman's got to be, oh, I would say seven to eight feet long. Wasn't small. Gets out of the boat and tiptoes through the water. Comes up behind this critter and grabs it and I'm blinking stuff like that you know they do every day
0: just playing with with the wildlife playing with critters yeah sounds like a pretty dangerous game i thought what i used to do was dangerous
1: no not like these guys
0: you say you almost died seven times how
1: Oh, that was in the military. Yeah. And six times after that.
0: Any close, close death uh, experiences on the water? A few in the service.
1: I had one where a chief petty officer with 25 years experience said to me, you're not going down there, are you, Mr. Sosen? I said, yes, chief, I am. I said, you lead from the front. And he shook my hand and he said, goodbye, sir, it's been nice to know you. And I came as close as I ever want to come. I'm not a religious person, but I'll tell you one thing, Andy. There was a moment there where I screamed, if there is a God, I need to talk to him right now.
0: (laughs) What did you see?
1: We had... Seven depth charges. A depth charge is like this and like that, and they use them against submarines. They roll them off, and when you get close to a sub, they explode. All right? And the boosters for them had broken loose in very, very rough seas, and they're rolling underneath the depth charges, and if a booster blows, seven depth charges blow, and we lose half the ship. So I went down to get the boosters out of there. Wave comes along and picks me up and takes me out of the ship. And I'm floating in the ocean. And in the meantime, we're refueling from a bigger ship so they can't turn around and get me. And at the last minute, another wave carried me. And the stern came up and I fell in the stern of Mm. our boat. Wow. And,
0: he answered your call
1: and let me tell you if you've ever heard of a dead man's grip have you ever heard of that?
0: no it's it, a it's a real thing then.
1: Oh yeah a dead man's grip is so real the strength that you generate holding on to something and clo- closing your fists you can tear it off steel and you won't let go. Hmm. That's a dead man's grip. And I've had that.
0: Right. Have you ever had a dead man grip on a fish? No. Or a fishing rod?
1: No. Did you ever ask me the biggest fish I ever caught?
0: What was the biggest fish you ever caught?
1: (laughs) Everybody asks me these things. What
0: was the biggest fish you ever caught? A shark. Yeah? How big?
1: Over a 1,000 pounds.
0: A mako? No, oh, it's great white. great white, I mean, yeah. Great
1: White. Um, Where were you? In Panama. There was a man by the name of Henry Carfagna from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Henry wanted to catch a black marlin, and he hired me to get him a black marlin, which I did. What I did was I put Henry in the chair, took an 80-pound outfit, We teased the black marlin up. I put the bait right in front of the black marlin. I handed Henry the rod. The marlin ate the bait. Henry locked up, started reeling. We used the boat to set the hook, and Henry's fighting the fish. Now, the sun is bearing down on us. Henry is 73 years old. I'm afraid he's going to get a heart attack. Okay? So I kept asking him, you sure you don't want me to take the rod? Finally, he said, maybe you better take it. I take the rod, and this is a 250-pound black marlin, and it jumps, just kind of vaults like that. The next thing I know, I figured in five minutes I'll have the marlin alongside the boat, we'll release it and go on. I get yanked out of the fighting chair. Second time I get yanked out, and a third time I get yanked out. Forty-five minutes later, I bring a, a white, great white that's over a thousand pounds alongside the boat. He ate that black marlin in three bites.
0: Wow! So you're pinned up against the transom there in the back. I
1: was of- in the chair, and I get pulled out of the chair.
0: So you you were still in the? It just pulled you up out of the chair, type of thing. Yeah, because I remember seeing the video of uh, Stuart Campbell in uh, Madeira getting ripped out of the boat. I think he was fishing thirty pound or tw- twenty pound for, you know, marlin over there in Madeira, and he had he had the the leader I guess up inside the reel, or actually the thirty pound, and the uh, the leader the four hundred pound got wrapped around the rod. And when the mate let go of that marlin, now the, the line ripped was basically wrapped around the rod and ripped Stuart right out of the boat. Wow, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Um,
1: I fished with Stuart. In fact, I did a show with Stuart.
0: And where were you? Because he was more known as a billfishman, right? Yeah,
1: that's what we were doing.
0: Yeah. Um, who uh, Who were the people that you were inspired by? Certainly Joe Brooks. Yeah.
1: Um, I went down to his house in Virginia and I said, Joe, I see a ladder. I'm on the bottom holding the ladder. You're at the top rung. How do I get from where I'm standing to where you're standing? and he looked at me and he said fish for every species you can everywhere where in the world you can using every type of tackle you can in other words go get the experience
0: right the full yeah. spectrum
1: and i took that advice
0: and you lived it um if you don't mind um a couple of people that you know very well. Uh, I called them this morning. Uh, and here is Jason Schwatweiser's remarks about you, the president of the IGFA. He said, Mark Sosen has left an indelible mark on the IGFA and the sport of fly fishing by creating the IGFA's fly fishing rules. I've known Mark for nearly 20 years and he's always made himself available if I had a fly fishing rule in question. He's a great man and someone that I can feel fortunate to call my friend. Flip Pallet, okay. Flip Pallet, as we all know, he had a great TV show as well. He said, Mark may be the most prolific scribe in the history of light tackle. How to. help? Mark helped me get my very first writing assignment. It was in the mid-60s for Angler's Bible. His dad, Irv, was a wonderful man that I really enjoyed fishing Biscayne Bay with. Mark was the director of Saltwater Fly Rodders of America and processed the application for my first fly rod world record. When Mark moved to Florida from New Jersey, I was working in a bank in Miami and made Mark's home mortgage loan. Mark's contributions to the lifestyle that we enjoy through his communication skills has been epic. These are people, IGFA and Mark have obviously had a great impact on our sport as well. Um, From this point, you know, we're talking about this big life you've had. I see this room and all your awards and and achievements. Tell me about Mark now. You're a month away from 88. How are you feeling?
1: Well, I was doing pretty well until couple of months ago and I uh, went to the bathroom early in the morning and I came out of the bathroom and I blacked out and I fell and in the process I twisted my right foot and apparently broke a bone in there and Susan Heard it and came out, called the paramedics. They took me to the hospital. And I spent five and a half weeks in the hospital, 16 days in intensive care. And they found that not only did I have a broken foot, but I had blood clots in my right leg. My whole right leg was black. And... Um, I haven't been able to walk since, um, it's just been a long ride, but I'm hopeful and I'm seeing doctors now and see if I can't get back on things. Um, when you, when you get old, things don't happen that fast.
0: Right. You told me five years ago when you were 82, You looked yourself in the mirror and had a conversation with yourself. Yeah. What was that conversation?
1: Nothing lasts forever. You know, you think things are going to go on forever, but they don't. Nothing lasts forever. And I've had a wonderful ride. I've accomplished things that 98% of the people can't even dream about. Um God, I even set up a photo safari in Africa. I've been charged by Cape Buffalo, by rhinos, by (laughs) all kinds of critters. Um, You you know, it's been a wonderful ride, and I just know that it doesn't last forever. And I'm going to be 88 years old, and I have to accept this.
0: Is that a difficult... Of course, it's difficult. Yeah, I can't even imagine.
1: I mean, I, I spent my whole life, like I said, I was almost killed seven times in the service. Came really close. And six times after that in civilian life. But I made it 13 times and...
0: They haven't got you yet. You're still kicking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mark, we've been friends for a long time. We worked together at the IGFA. We sure did. You know, I've always admired, you know, your friendship and your inspiration as a gazillion people around the world in the fishing world. And you have so many great friends that when I mentioned that I'm visiting you today, they all say, just give Mark a big old hug. We love him. So thank well, you. I, I appreciate so that. Thank you so much for allowing us to be in your home today with, with you and Susan.
1: Thank you, Andy. So thank you. you for coming. My pleasure.
0: For the rest of time, Mark Sosen will have a great presence in fishing. He was reluctant to be on the show today because of his health, but I told him we're coming anyway. We all wanted and needed to hear his story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a huge favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.